0: Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy to digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Hi, everyone. This is Paul Frank. Today we'll be discussing case 13 trauma laparotomy from our textbook, anesthesiology, and critical care morning report, Beyond the Pearls. Our patient is a 21-year-old man who was brought to the operating room for emergency exploratory laparotomy after he was found unresponsive with a gunshot wound through the right lower quadrant of his abdomen. He is unable to provide any medical history. His blood pressure is 64 over 37 via the blood pressure cuff, and his heart rate is 152 beats per minute. His respiratory rate is 6 breaths per minute and irregular. His oxygen saturation is 84%. He has a 20-gauge IV in his hand. What are the priorities in treating this patient? Advanced Trauma Life Support (ATLS) provides a framework for this scenario. A is for airway. Make sure that the patient's airway is patent. B is for breathing. Make sure that the patient is ventilating. If the airway is not patent, or if the patient is not breathing, they will require endotracheal intubation. C is for circulation. Identify sites of active hemorrhage, apply tourniquets, pressure as appropriate, and proceed to the operating room to control bleeding. D is for neurologic disability. Look for signs of impending brain herniation and, if possible, assess the patient's Glasgow Coma score. E is for exposure. Look for additional injuries such as bruising and deformed bones. What is the differential diagnosis of hypotension in this patient? Well, we are almost certain that this patient is hemorrhaging. This patient is in hypovolemic shock. But what else may be going on in this trauma patient? It's important to rule out pericardial tamponade, which is the accumulation of fluid in the pericardial sac, which limits filling of the heart. For those of you watching the video, the image on the right is an ultrasound image showing the accumulation of fluid, black on ultrasound, around the heart compressing the right ventricle. It's also important to rule out a tension pneumothorax, which is the accumulation of positive pressure in the pleural space. And that chest X-ray is shown on the image in the bottom of the screen. Additionally, patients who have sustained cervical or high thoracic spine injuries may develop neurogenic shock, which is the loss of vascular tone and bradycardia. How is pericardial tamponade managed? We remember full, fast, and tight. Volume resuscitation will keep the patient's heart full. Maintain tachycardia to keep the patient's heart beating fast. Maintain systemic vascular resistance to keep the blood vessels tight. Additionally. Avoid positive pressure ventilation as much as possible. These patients require emergency surgical decompression to relieve the tamponade. How is tension pneumothorax managed? A decompressive needle thoracostomy, in other words, placing a needle through the chest wall to relieve the positive pressure within the chest, is necessary. How is neurogenic shock managed? Patients in neurogenic shock have lost most or all of their hemodynamic regulatory mechanisms. They require volume resuscitation vasopressors, inotropes, and chronotropes to restore normal physiology. If the injury is above spinal level C5, the diaphragm may have been paralyzed. They require intubation and mechanical ventilation. It's critically important that during intubation of patients with cervical spine injuries that we maintain the spine in the neutral position to avoid further injuring the spinal cord. This can be done via awake fiberoptic intubation or manual inline stabilization with video laryngoscopy. In managing neurogenic shock, it is always critical to rule out hemorrhage first. Back to our patient. We do not suspect a cervical spine injury. How will you secure the airway? This patient is bleeding and surgery needs to begin quickly. Apply basic monitors, pulse oximeter, a blood pressure cuff, and at least three ECG leads and perform a rapid sequence intubation known as RSI. The hypnotic agent commonly used for RSI is Atomidate or Ketamine. While the classic teaching is that Atomidate or ketamine will not cause hypotension, that is not always the case. Patients who are in shock, such as ours, can become hypotensive with larger doses or doses that are administered too rapidly. For paralysis, succinylcholine or high-dose rocuronium will have the patient ready for intubation in about 60 seconds. Beware that patients who have sustained crush injuries should not receive succinylcholine. What is RSI? Taking a step back, This trauma patient coming in for emergency surgery has unknown NPO status. We don't know when his last meal was, so we have to assume he has a full stomach. RSI reduces the risk of pulmonary aspiration of gastric contents. To perform an RSI, give the hypnotic agent followed immediately by the paralytic. Avoid mask ventilation if at all possible. There's active debate whether or not cricoid pressure, the manual application of force to the cricoid ring, is helpful in this scenario. After induction, but before intubation, the patient starts vomiting. What should you do? If cricoid pressure is being applied, release it. Position the patient in Trendelenburg position, that is, head down, feet up. If the cervical spine has been cleared and there's no concern for an unstable cervical spine, turn their head to the side. Suction at their mouth and oral pharynx, then perform laryngoscopy and intubate the patient. You can then suction down the endotracheal tube after intubation to remove any aspirated contents. What are the best options for intravenous access? The goal here is reliable large-bore access that can be placed quickly. The fastest way to achieve this is by placing multiple large peripheral IV catheters, generally 18 gauge or larger. And remember, a smaller gauge corresponds to a larger bore catheter, so a 16 gauge is larger than an 18 gauge. Other options for intravenous access include central venous catheter and an intraosseous line although these require specialized equipment and expertise to place safely and quickly. Where can intraosseous access be obtained? An intraosseous catheter infuses into the intramedullary venous plexus within bone. Common sites for IO access include the proximal or distal tibia, the distal femur, the proximal humerus, the iliac crest, and yes, even the sternum. What are the contraindications to intraosseous access? While well, you would not place an I.O. catheter in an extremity with a fracture or a crush injury. Do not place an I.O. catheter where there has been a prior attempt at placement of an I.O. catheter. Do not place an I.O. catheter where the patient has had prior orthopedic procedures, which often leave behind hardware. Do not place an I.O. catheter at the site of an infection or a burn. Additionally, patients with right-to-left intracardiac shunt have elevated risk of fat embolism to systemic circulation with placement of an I.O. catheter. Where can central venous access be obtained? The three most common sites for central venous access are the internal jugular vein, the subclavian vein, and the femoral vein. Once the airway is secured and resuscitation is underway, what additional monitor should you place? Place an arterial catheter to allow for continuous blood pressure monitoring as well as frequent lab draws. Place a temperature probe to monitor for hypothermia. This may be an esophageal temperature probe, or it may be part of the indwelling Foley catheter. Place a twitch monitor to monitor the depth of muscle relaxation. Place an indwelling urinary catheter to decompress the bladder and monitor urine output. Place an orogastric tube to decompress the stomach. Place a processed EEG monitor to monitor the depth of anesthesia. Initial labs drawn in the ambulance show a hematocrit of 42%, which is normal. Do we still need to transfuse blood? The answer is yes. Patients bleed whole blood, so in someone who is hemorrhaging, they lose red blood cells and plasma in the same ratio that they exist in their bodies. So if they had taken a sample of blood off of the floor of the ambulance and checked a hematocrit on it, the hematocrit would also be 42%. Over time, hours to days, interstitial fluid will be mobilized from the extravascular space into the intravascular space. Additionally, the kidneys will retain free water. Both of these things will result in a decrease in hematocrit, but again this is not something that we can rely on acutely in the setting of hemorrhage. What fluid should be used for resuscitation? Blood, of course. Activate massive transfusion protocol with the blood bank as soon as you are aware that a trauma patient is coming. Some hospitals, particularly in the military, provide whole blood for massive transfusion protocol. Other hospitals, most civilian hospitals, provide blood components, red blood cells, fresh frozen plasma, and platelets. Ideally, these should be transfused in a 1-to-1-to-1 ratio to restore both oxygen carrying capacity via red blood cells and coagulation capacity via fresh frozen plasma, FFP, and platelets. What else can help prevent coagulopathy? Administration of tranexamic acid, an antifibrinolytic agent. Has been shown to provide a survival benefit. Calcium administration should begin with the first unit of blood. Additionally, monitor fibrinogen levels to assess the need for cryoprecipitate. Surgery is underway. While the patient is still bleeding, the blood pressure is 143 over 85. Is that acceptable? No. That blood pressure is too high. Hypertension can make bleeding worse. So, during the initial damage control phase, the goal systolic blood pressure should be 80 to 100 millimeters of mercury, and this is known as permissive hypotension. After the patient has received eight units of red blood cells, eight units of FFP, and eight platelets, the rhythm strip shows pointy T waves, illustrated by the red arrows on the right. What's going on? These pointy T waves are known as peaked T waves, and they are a sign of hyperkalemia, elevated serum potassium. So, what's going on? When red blood cells are stored in the blood bank, every day some number of them die. When red blood cells die, they burst and release potassium. Eventually, the recipient, our trauma patient in this case, receives red blood cells as well as the potassium from red blood cells that have died. How can you treat hyperkalemia? Start by giving calcium, either calcium chloride or calcium gluconate. This does not directly treat hyperkalemia, but it electrically stabilizes the myocardial cells of the heart and helps prevent arrhythmias. Give insulin and 50% dextrose solution, known as D50, to stimulate cells to take up potassium from the blood and store it intracellularly. Give a beta agonist like albuterol or epinephrine, which will similarly stimulate cells to take up potassium from the blood and store it intracellularly. Furosemide, as a loop diuretic, will eliminate potassium via renal excretion in the kidneys. As a last resort, hemodialysis will filter potassium directly from the bloodstream. The patient's temperature is 33.4 degrees Celsius. Should you be concerned? Yes. Hypothermia can be lethal in trauma patients. In fact, the lethal triad of trauma consists of hypothermia, acidosis, and coagulopathy. So how do we treat hypothermia? Increase the temperature of the room. Apply a forced air heating blanket or even regular warm blankets to any part of the patient that you can. Always administer fluids via a fluid warmer and limit exposure of the patient as much as possible. What are the mechanisms of heat loss under general anesthesia? There are four of them. The first and most important is radiation. Heat leaves the body for the surroundings. Convection is where cold air saps heat from the body as it circulates in the room. Evaporation is particularly important when there is an open body cavity such as the thorax or the abdomen. Finally, conduction is when the body loses heat from contact with a cold surface such as the operating room table. The surgeons have control of the bleeding. How will you know when your resuscitation is adequate? The underlying cause of hemorrhagic shock is hypovolemia. This presents with hypotension and tachycardia. As the hypovolemia resolves, blood pressure will increase and heart rate will start to decrease. Additionally, urine output may improve and metabolic acidosis may resolve as adequate tissue perfusion is restored. However, improved urine output and resolution of metabolic acidosis are lagging indicators. At the end of surgery, the patient has received 22 units of red blood cells, 18 units of FFP, 10 units of platelets, and 4 units of cryoprecipitate. Estimated blood loss is 10 liters. His heart rate is 112 beats per minute, his blood pressure is 106 over 68, his pulse oximeter is reading 94% on 100% FiO2. Should you extubate this patient? The answer is no. This patient has suffered massive blood loss and has received massive resuscitation. These fluid shifts increase the risk of upper airway edema, which can present as laryngeal swelling and swelling of the tongue that can make it difficult to ventilate. That endotracheal tube may be the only thing stenting open the airway and allowing for ventilation. Additionally, pulmonary edema can result, as in the case of transfusion-related acute lung injury, TRALI, or transfusion-associated circulatory overload, TACO. Additionally, this patient had depressed mental status on arrival to the hospital. We don't know if he was intoxicated or suffered some other traumatic brain injury that may make it unsafe for him to breathe unassisted. His current mental status is unknown. Finally, this patient may require additional resuscitation, treatment of coagulopathy, and even management of missed injuries. For all of these reasons, it is safest to leave the patient intubated and sedated and transport to the ICU. Beyond the pearls. Trauma patients have a high incidence of intraoperative recall. In the case of severe hypotension, it may become necessary to turn off the anesthetic agent. A dose of benzodiazepine can reduce the risk of intraoperative recall. Shock is a powerful anesthetic. It will take very little induction agent to induce general anesthesia in a patient in hemorrhagic shock. Cricoid pressure may or may not be helpful in preventing passive aspiration of gastric contents. However, it will not prevent aspiration caused by active retching. If the patient is actively retching and vomiting, release cricoid pressure to prevent esophageal rupture. In the setting of acute hemorrhage, hemoglobin and hematocrit will not change quickly enough to indicate the need for additional transfusion. It is better to rely on hemodynamics, things like heart rate and blood pressure, as well as clinical observation, how quickly are the suction canisters filling up with blood, in order to guide resuscitation. To learn more about this and other topics, read our textbook. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher again and Dr. Patrick Beatman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only, and is not medical advice. Ours longa, Vita Brevis.